This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show in partnership with the Compassionate Friends. I'm your host, Dr. Heidi Horsley, and I'm here today with my guest, Dr. Edward Shaw. We're going to talk today about Alzheimer's, keeping love alive. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guest first. Dr. Edward Shaw is duly trained as a physician and a mental health counselor. He was the primary care partner for his wife, Rebecca, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in 2007 and died after a nine-year battle. Dr. Shaw is the co-author of Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade, The Five Love Languages, and the Alzheimer's Journey. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to this interview because I loved your book and what I was surprised about. And as I said, it's called Keeping Love Alive as Memories Fade. What I was surprised about is how I feel like anybody could strengthen their relationships using the five love languages that you talk about in this book. Well, the five love languages, the the original book was published 25 years ago by Dr. Gary Chapman, mm-hmm. uh, who is a marriage counselor and pastor here in Winston-Salem. And after meeting with literally thousands of couples, he had made the observation that uh, there was often the miscommunication of love between one partner and the other and that he principally saw love being communicated in five different ways, and he eventually called this the five love languages. And that book, which I I think he uh, expected to sell maybe 10,000 copies, has now sold over 11 million copies in 55 languages. So um, love is a big subject. You're right. Absolutely. That is amazing. And I want to start out today by talking with you about your wife, Rebecca, and how you know, you used some of the things in your book as she struggled with Alzheimer's and progressively got worse. And this is a topic near and dear to my heart because my mother-in-law also had Alzheimer's and I watched her progression and it was it was very stressful. And I wish at the time that I had had this book with me. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I think uh, having been with Rebecca for 40 years, married 36 of those years, um, when she was diagnosed with the disease, and and particularly about three years before she passed away, she lost recognition of me as her husband, and we have three adult daughters, and and she lost uh, track of who the girls were, and she no longer knew us as her family members. In fact, she lost just this big chunk of her life. She thought she was more or less back in her middle school years from, from the 1960s, And so, um, you know, Ed, I just want to say that was a very heartbreaking place in the book. And you really brought us there when you were out in the back of the house sitting and you guys, I think, were having a cup of coffee or something. And all of a sudden she looked at you and asked you who you were. Yes. Um, It it will generate emotion for me to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But um, I have to say that um, other than perhaps when when we lost her this this past August, you know, when she took her last breath. Mm Um, that was the most painful moment of the whole journey, you know, to, and it happened overnight. So literally the the night before it happened, 
So this was in August of 2013, and we were talking about the kids, and you know, so much of what we spoke about was about our children because that was, you know, we were very family-oriented people. Mm-hmm. And the next day, as, as I talked about in the book, I'm serving her coffee, and she looked at me, and she didn't know who I was, and she had these, this very blank expression on her face, and she just said, "I have no idea who you are." And it was just, it was a heartbreaking moment. And uh, I still think, like I said, one of the, I think the most difficult moments of her entire journey. But I knew in that moment, too, that even though she no longer knew me as her husband uh, and as her lover, um, that I wanted to continue keeping the love alive in our relationship. And in some ways, that was the moment that uh, that in- encouraged writing this book and saying that you can do this, you can keep the love alive. And so having heard Gary Chapman speak many years ago, in fact, uh, Rebecca and I had been at a conference of his, the, live, the Five Love Languages for Teenagers, because at that time our, our kids were much younger. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remembered that framework and um, had begun using it in my own counseling of individuals and couples and families on the journey, and it became very applicable within our own family as well. And so these five sort of universal love languages are very useful as a simple framework for people who have a loved one with dementia to to love them in very intentional ways. Well, I was struck by the fact that she was only 54 when she was diagnosed. Isn't that correct? She was. Yeah, and and you know, you said something, and I know that it'll. You said something in the book that was was re- really struck a chord with me, and that's that you know what, even after people get into the late stages, they still pick up on your energy, you know, and they can still feel that. So if you're anxious and stressed and irritated, that is a trigger. They can feel those kind of things. Yes, they feel those things, and you know, um, maybe you had this experience with your mother-in-law, mm-hmm. but. A lot of the emotions that seem to be expressed in the later stages of the disease uh, come as people feel detachment from, you know, their loved ones, going back to, like, parents and siblings all the way to, you know, their spouse and friends and coworkers. And even though uh, they lose memory of these attachments, um, they're still very capable of emoting. And so a lot of the emotions that come from feelings of detachment are negative emotions, fear, anger, anxiety, worry. But yet people who have dementia all the way to the very end stages of the disease, this is true to Rebecca up until 10 days before she died, that they are very capable of feeling emotion, positive emotions like love, even though they have a very, very difficult time expressing those loving emotions. And so I think this is probably the most important message of the book is that the person who has dementia, though they have more difficulty expressing love, they can receive love all the way to the end of their journey. That's really important so that you need to continue to give them love even if you aren't getting it back, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. And so th- this is really the hardest thing I tell when, I, when I'm seeing a, a husband or a wife or an adult child who has loved one with dementia, is to say, you know, as a care partner, as a caregiver, you're going to carry the emotion, the weight of the emotional backpack. You're going to have to carry the emotional aspect of 
this journey. You're going to have to intentionally and sacrificially love, whether it's you know your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your mother, your father, husband or wife. You know, it's going to have to be intentional, sacrificial love. And what you get back, you're not going to get the same thing back. Mm-hmm. But you learn how to to just uh, take little things like a smile, you know, or a tear. Or once in a while, you may get that hug or that I love you, and that can just, you know, carry you as a care partner for days and even weeks right. because those positive expressions are so few and far between. Wow, I love this this information. So let's talk about the five love languages. So sure. Um, so the, the five love languages um, uh, are um, words of affirmation, so these are um, unsolicited words of affection or appreciation that you, you give to uh, a person you care about. The second one is quality time. It's giving somebody your full and your undivided attention. The third one is gifts. And this isn't necessarily just purchase gifts. It can be a handmade gift like a card. It could even be a, a gift, uh, a found gift, um, something you might find find in nature that might be really valuable to somebody. And you uh, and said, I think at one point it could even be your physical presence, right? Yes, it could okay. be your physical presence, although, you know, quality time could also be mm-hmm. thought of as, um, as a, a gift of physical presence. So there is a little overlap between them. Um, the fourth gift is acts of service, or in the book we call it acts of kindness. It's just something that you do for another person to lighten their lo- load or bring joy to them. And then the last one is physical touch. It's just deliberately conveying your presence to someone by uh, touching them somewhere on their body. You know what I'm struck by with this? You know, we are at our foundation, Open to Hope. We talk about finding hope after loss. And people have had losses like you have with Rebecca and how people find hope again. And these five things are really what we need when we're grieving a loss. Yes, there are ways that you really can. Uh, I, I love, you know, the the, the finding hope um, because, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that coping is hoping or hoping is coping, mm-hmm. you know, that we cope with, you know, losses and life transitions um, by, have, by finding hope in situations. And I can give you an example. Um, so Rebecca, um, what her primary love language was acts of service. Um, mm-hmm. And her least love language was gifts. She was the least materialistic human being that um, that that I knew on the entire planet. Wow, that's fabulous. That's amazing. Uh, my primary love language is physical touch. And mm-hmm. so we were a very sort of touchy-feely, kissy couple before she got the disease. And for her, like many people with Alzheimer's disease, there's kind of a, the, one of the primary areas the disease affects the parietal lobes is where all our sensory input comes in. So she became almost autistic-like with touch. She really didn't like touch. She was mm-hmm. hypersensitive to it. But one of the things that we could do uh, would be uh, after supper, we'd always sit down together, and I'd sit right next to her on the couch, and we would watch a movie together. She likes certain movies like musicals. Um, and I this, found didn't you see the sound a, of music over a hundred times with her? Oh, probably a thousand <laughs> times. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Right? Yeah, I'm you sure you know every line. Hear the soundtrack. And uh, I bet you uh, for three years, 
every single day we watch, we listen to and watch the soundtrack of Simon. Wow. And it was a time when I could sit right next to her, so our hips were touching. Once in a while, I'd slip my hand over, and we'd intertwine our fingers. And it was a time when she could receive that physical touch um, and not feel, you know, sort of stressed out by it or overstimulated by it. And um, uh, one of our daughters, uh, we, uh, we have these three adult daughters, and our youngest daughter uh, would often go up to Rebecca, and she would put her, har- her arms around Rebecca's neck, and she'd say, hug me, Mama, hug me. And, you know, once in a while, Rebecca would hug Carrie back, and it was just, you know, the most awesome moment, you know, just one teeny tiny hug, mm-hmm. you know, when probably Rebecca and Carrie had hugged thousands of times, you know, during Carrie's upbringing. So it sounds like it's important to really appreciate those little moments rather than being critical of all the times that Rebecca wasn't hugging you. Yes, yes, and it's uh, it's the notion of um, really focusing on what somebody can do rather mm-hmm. than sometimes, uh, you know, we can be we can get on a roll with, you know, all the things they can't do anymore with because of their dementia. But yes, those little moments uh, can be huge minutes and hours and days in the care partner's life and the person who has dementia too. Mm-hmm. And I know in your book it was it was hard to hear that you know you guys used to spoon and, and snuggle at night, and it got to the point where Rebecca needed to have her own bed. She couldn't tolerate even sleeping next to you. Yes, because it was yes. too hard. She didn't know who I was anymore. It was like uh, I don't, I don't want you in my bed. I don't know you. So, so for people out there that it would take it as a personal rejection, what would you say to them? Because it sounds like it's not about you. Yeah. So I think um, you really, um, you you have to um, have the mindset, uh, a sacrificial and very giving mindset, and so. You know, it really becomes not about what you receive in the relationship so much because that's so much of what's lost is what you no longer get. But it's what you're still able to give um, and how your loved one is able to receive that, just like um, love. And so you do, you find that these, you know, little moments of a smile or sometimes she would look at me and uh, even though she never called me my name for the last three years of the journey, she would look at me in a way that, you know, I thought, she really knows that I'm somebody important in her life. Mm-hmm. Those looks were so meaningful. And it takes, it's, a, it's an attitude adjustment. It's a shift. And you can't take things personally. It's like um, sometimes if I kissed her, you know, I would kiss her on the cheek or on the neck or on the ear. Um, and if it wasn't a good time, you know, there were times when she would, you know, give me an elbow right in the face and say, mm. no. Wow. And um, and so you almost have to learn to say it's not a no, it's not a rejection, it's just a not now. Oh, I like that idea of, re- uh, of reworking it and thinking of, about it as a not now. I loved the, the places in your book where you said uh, one of the best times of the day was it was when she would eat dessert and eat ice cream and she would smile. Mm-hmm. She loved those ice cream cones, and th- that became the most important gift to her in the latter parts of her disease as she loved her ice cream cones. And as I said, she wasn't really a, a materially oriented person. And, um, of course, for people who have this disease, you know, they don't really think about anything material anyway. But just getting an interest in, uh, an ice cream cone 
could just she could smile for an hour with that. That's amazing. Laugh and just have so much joy in that. You know, I would think that um, you know, losing anybody that we love is very hard, but in your case, you took care of her for nine years. And I would think it was a very intimate time in your lives for so many reasons. And it must have been very strange all of a sudden to not only not have your wife anymore, but also your your role, your role as a caretaker. Yes. It's a huge adjustment. Um, so we had four ladies who helped me care for Rebecca during her last three years. The A-team, um, weren't they called? <laughs> the A-team. <laughs> uh, yes, they're, they're coming over for dinner tomorrow night. Oh, I, oh, I love that because their we names all together. ended with A, right? I'm sorry? Their names all ended in A? They all ended in A. So Rebecca ended in A, and then uh, Letisa, Tasha, Florina, and Fatima. And um, they they were the team, and um, we became family. I mean, so Re- Rebecca had an unusual aspect of her dementia that happens in young-onset people um, where their occipital lobes, kind of their vision processing lobes, become destroyed. So she was almost like functionally blind. She she always had to have somebody holding on to her or she would walk into things or trip over things and fall. So um, when I wasn't home, there had to be a caregiver present. And um, so these ladies, along with uh, with Aaron and Leah and Carrie, my three daughters, and then uh, Rebecca's mom and just extended family and friends, there was about 11 of us who were very involved in Rebecca's care. And you know, we we became the team that took care of her, and we became family. That's and, amazing. Um, when she passed away, uh, you're right. It was just you know, for all of us, in a way, redefining ourselves, um, not being uh, primary care partners and caregivers for Rebecca. Mm-hmm. That's that's big. So, how you know, did you use or apply any of your five love languages? In order to heal, you mean after the death, after the after the actual death of Rebecca? Because I know the loss started way before she died. But after she died, did you use any of the love languages to help in finding hope again? Like, did you like acts of service? I mean, did you did you become more turn your grief outward and were you of service, or or are you not at that place yet? Well, I would say that. I mean, the the answer is is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you know, I changed my profession. Uh, I was a cancer doctor in my first career, and I changed my profession. I, I got additional training, and now I do more counseling work for individuals and couples and families on this journey. Oh, that's four amazing. Groups and uh, and do now a fair amount of public speaking about the book and. Um, so, you know, as is true for so many people who experience loss, that you have to you have to find some meaning in that loss. It's like the, you know, the mom who lost her daughter to a drunk driver started the the organization Mothers Against mm-hmm. Drunk Drivers. Yes, we've had Candy Lightner on our show, actually. Yes. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, awesome and person, and she just, is. You know, sort of exemplifies how. You, know, you can turn a tragedy into a triumph, uh, even though it never re- like it. You know that will never replace her daughter, but it will give meaning to the loss. And so, I find a lot of meaning in the work that I do. You know, just uh, meeting with people every day, and you know, we created a, a counseling center for for individuals and 
you know, couples and families on this journey almost six years ago. And, you know, it grew from just, you know, me spending part of one day to now we're going to hire our fourth full-time counselor. Wow. That's a tremendous need for for this kind of service. And and like you said in your book, the need is growing because people are living longer. And so the need is just going to continue to grow in this country for your service and what you're doing. Well, this this dementia thing is going to be an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I figured out with the demographic of North Carolina, we have a bit older average age because we're a retirement state, uh, state that within one generation in 20 years, one in eight people in North Carolina will either have dementia or be a primary dementia caregiver. That's unbelievable. Scary statistic. That's unbelievable. So this is very much needed. And and your book is needed, and your resources are needed. Where do people find you if they need to find you and and get a hold of you? Well, um, they can uh, they could just uh, Google my name. Okay. And um, so our uh, our program at Wake Forest is called uh, the Memory Counseling Program of Wake Forest Baptist Health, and uh, they can uh, contact me by getting my contact info there. My email is eshaw at wakehealth.edu, and that's an easy way to get hold of me. And then they can access the book either through the Five Love Languages uh, website, which is just 5ll.com, or um, the book is available through Amazon and all the traditional retailers. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Edward Shaw, for all you're doing today for all the lives that you're touching and for everything you're doing in tribute to to your wife. It's it's just phenomenal. And and I want to close with just saying I love the 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 Victor Frankl quote because Man's Search for Meaning is probably the most important book I ever read after my brother died. And you've got in your book um, a quote that says, "When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves." And you have certainly done that, and you are certainly changing the world. So thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you again for having me. I enjoyed it so much. Take care. Bye-bye. And we always say, for those of you that have lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. Thank you, and God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.